listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hi, Michelle. Hey, Sarah. Welcome to Belaboured Episode 231. Today, we're continuing our in-depth conversation about Occupy Wall Street with two more of our favorite thinkers and organizers. If you missed last week's episode, part one of this series, we encourage you to go back and check it out. But first, some news. The Nabisco workers who have been on nationwide strike have voted to accept a contract and return to work. The new contract keeps the health care plan the workers had wanted to preserve rather than the two-tier plan the company had wanted, and according to text publicized by More Perfect Union, includes a $0.60 cent an hour wage increase each year for four years and a $5,000 bonus for all employees. Note that employers really love bonuses rather than wage increases. Just saying. But it did not solve the questions over working time that had driven the workers, particularly those in Portland, Oregon, who began the strike a month ago and voted down the proposed contract in their local to the picket lines. According to Willamette Week, the Portland workers in Bakery, Confectionery, Tobacco Workers, and Grain Millers International Union Local 364 voted the contract down because it proposed creating weekend crews that would take away weekend overtime opportunities from weekday workers. Workers around the rest of the country voted in enough numbers to make up the difference. Reporter Sophie Peel wrote, quote, Local union representatives tell WW that both new and existing employees could bid for the contested weekend shifts, and those workers would have three 12-hour shifts but get paid for 40 hours. Portland union members say that's no better than Mondelez, which is, of course, the parent company of Nabisco, last offer, which would have shifted the schedule to an alternative work week that would reduce overtime. The new contract lasts four years. Local 364 Vice President Mike Burlingham voted against the contract. When asked if there was any way the local union could fight it or take further action, his answer was simple. Unfortunately not. End quote. As Alex Press noted at Jacobin, the Nabisco strike had many things in common with the Frito-Lay strike earlier this summer, popular snack foods which sold well during the pandemic and escalated pressure on their workforces to make up the slack. As Alex wrote, quote, the Nabisco strike is another example of a dynamic spreading across industries in the United States. As employers scramble to staff up, many currently employed workers are subjected to mandatory overtime, with bosses seeking to work them to the bone rather than recruit more people. A potential costly move when workers are hard to find. In response, some workers are using their increased leverage during a period of employer panic over the tight labor market to push back, demanding better wages and working conditions. And much of the time, those demands are about hours and scheduling. End quote. Nabisco, she noted, saw profits nearly double in the most recent quarter, but workers have seen none of that money. The CEO, however, made $18 million in total compensation last year. The strike was contentious, particularly in Oregon, where it began, as Peel wrote, quote, two weeks into the strike, Baker's union members set up a station down by the railroad tracks near the factory to stop incoming supply trains operated by railroad union members from reaching the bakery. Eventually, Portland police kicked strikers off the land after the company determined it was, in fact, owned by Mondelez. Outside supporters of the strike soon intensified tactics by blocking vans carrying strike-breaking workers from entering and leaving the facility. Protesters found out where Mondelez was loading strike-breakers onto buses and vans to transport them to the bakery. They routinely blocked vans from entering and leaving that parking lot, often clashing with security guards hired by the strike staffing company Huffmaster Crisis Response, end quote. That's a great, terrible name for a strike-breaking company, isn't it? 
Anyway, so what have we learned from this strike? As HuffPost's Dave Jameson noted on Twitter, strikes are complicated, folks. Sorry, it's true. Just because workers walk off the job and remain militant doesn't mean they get everything they want, particularly in manufacturing these days where corporations continue to search the world for the cheapest labor force. Outsourcing was also an issue in this strike. These are challenges that workers in other industries are going to have to consider looking at as we move forward. But it's worth stressing yet again that this is the second big strike at a major American food manufacturer this year as supply chain issues are ramping up around the globe and workers signal new militancy. We'll have more on all these subjects very soon. After the pandemic shut down restaurants around the world, many of us started to rediscover home cooking. And those of us with a little cash to burn and a hankering for gourmet ingredients opted to take it to the next level with a fancy meal kit delivery service. But did you know how much labor goes into prepping your food before you put your own work into making that fancy Mediterranean pasta dish or sheet pan jalapeno chicken? Workers at one of the leading meal kit delivery companies, HelloFresh, are trying to form a union so that their labor is fairly recognized and compensated and that they're safe at work. Before that meal kit arrives at your door, they are the sous chefs toiling away in an industrial kitchen in a remote location, chopping your garlic, slicing your steaks. And many have complained that the pressure cooker environment is miserable and dangerous. Roughly 1,300 workers with HelloFresh kitchens in Aurora, Colorado and Richmond, California are organizing in conjunction with Unite Here. And if successful, the Germany-based HelloFresh would become the first meal kit delivery service to be unionized in the U.S., In a petition to HelloFresh's U.S. CEO, Uwe Ross, HelloFresh workers and Unite Here argued that the explosive growth that the industry has seen during the pandemic means that, quote, today's meal kit factory kitchens are yesterday's garment factories, unquote. As the company saw revenues double over the past year, the workers say that, quote, employees face disrespect, a COVID-19 outbreak, and preventable injuries, unquote. According to Eater.com, the meal kit delivery industry saw explosive growth in the early 2010s, but the bubble started to deflate a few years later, as people discovered that they'd just rather cook for themselves. It took a global pandemic to revive sales, as more people turned to meal deliveries rather than risking exposure to COVID-19 by going to restaurants or shopping at supermarkets. Unionization could be a major turning point in an industry that has been brimming with labor issues for years. In 2016, BuzzFeed ran an expose on another prominent meal kit service, Blue Apron, detailing how workers were being forced to pack kits at a frantic pace and how the company had racked up several federal workplace safety violations. The work environment for a meal kit delivery service seems a lot like an Amazon warehouse plopped over an industrial kitchen. Vice News reported that some workers at the Aurora and Richmond kitchens complained about suffering work-related injuries and being homeless or having to live with their parents because they could not afford rent on HelloFresh wages. Perhaps that's That's why the union drive at HelloFresh parallels other pandemic organizing actions at Amazon, at grocery stores like Trader Joe's, and even some fast food restaurants, companies that have been able to capitalize on the pandemic while making workers more vulnerable. HelloFresh told Eater that it would, quote, respect our employees' right to choose to be represented by a union or not, and have and will continue to comply with the National Labor Relations Act and all other federal, state, and local labor laws, unquote. Of course, proclaiming that it respects workers' right to choose a union doesn't mean it won't try various shady tactics to propagandize against unions at work. And workers have told Vice News that they have been visited by anti-union consultants in recent days, aimed at deterring them from organizing. But Lily Vasquez, who stuffs bags of produce at the factory kitchen in Richmond, told Vice that she is determined to form a union. Quote, Lots of us are excited. We are sure a union is what we want and what we need to have the change we need to make. I am worried a lot for the people working at HelloFresh. 
A lot of us have injured hands and pain in our feet, but we work through the pain because we won't get paid if we go home. We need this change immediately, and I know we are going to achieve it, unquote. So as you can see, things are heating up in those industrial kitchens. The union just filed their petition, so it may be a while yet before we know whether this campaign will bear fruit, but it may establish a beachhead for labor organizing in a huge precarious workforce. So HelloFresh might be on the cusp of saying hello to the first union for all the hidden kitchen helpers who are making home cooking easier for the rest of us. When Occupy Wall Street emerged a decade ago, with a motley crowd camping out in a tiny park in the financial district, I and many others regarded it somewhat skeptically at first, but as the occupation persisted for days and then weeks and months, the occupation began to snowball into a full-fledged global protest movement, and that cynicism yielded to a strange optimism, something many of us weren't quite used to feeling in the wake of a giant recession in the midst of abysmal inequality that seemed to be getting deeper by the day. Although Occupy didn't last very long, it has had an enduring afterglow, casting its embers on many of the movements that have spawned in its wake. This month, the Labor is revisiting Occupy Wall Street 10 years on. This is the second installment of our two-part series, developed as part of a collective of podcasts that is exploring the legacy of Occupy 10 years on. Through this project, you can also hear analysis on the impact of Occupy from The Dig and several of your other favorite podcasts. The producing partners for this project are the Rosa Luxemburg Foundation's New York office and the New School's Milano program. We encourage you to learn more and listen to some of the other episodes by visiting rosalux.nyc occupy. For this episode, we're speaking with Ruth Milkman, a labor scholar at CUNY's School of Labor and Urban Studies and co-author of a landmark study on the participants of Occupy Wall Street, and Nasran Mohit, director of organizing with the News Guild of New York and one of the folks who helped connect Zuccotti Park with the cross-currents of the city's labor movement. So let us go back to... September 2011 and talk about where you were when Occupy Wall Street started. Um, Tell us about how you learned about it and what were you doing at the time and um, how did you first encounter this movement? Ruth, do you want to jump in? Well, I'll start. For me, it's a sort of different question because I'm more an observer than a participant, though I did go to a bunch of events in the course of the time in Zuccotti Park and, and thereafter. Um, but what I remember most is that prior to the emergence of Occupy, a lot of us were really very depressed about the overall political situation. You know, there was the Scott Walker um, successful rollback of the protests in Wisconsin. We thought public sector unionism was done for, and it just seemed like a very bleak situation. And then suddenly it all turned around with the, you know, to me, surprising emergence of this new, very vibrant and energetic um, explosion of protests. So I can't, I don't know if I remember exactly when I heard about it or where I was, but um, I do remember going and, and, you know, just being struck by how festive it was and how, um, also how youthful it was, especially in the beginning. Um, which became a kind of focus for me and trying to make sense of it later on. Um, that it, to me, it's a, it was a generational phenomenon, among other things, in, in that it, it sort of marked the beginning of a new wave of protest involving a new generation of political activists. Yeah. So, uh, Nastran, were you one of those youth <laughs> somewhere in the crowd? <laughs> I was one of, one of the youths. <laughs> um, 
Let me see. So September 2011, I was um, knee deep in a number of uh, organizing campaigns. I'm, I'm a labor organizer. And at that time, um, I was actually working on a campaign with some restaurant workers in, in New York City and um, continuing to work with domestic workers. And we were actually I believe at that time we were working on a project called the Excluded Workers Congress, um, which was bringing together workers across um, across the area that are um, excluded from traditional labor laws. And I remember we were in a meeting and we left. I, I had heard about Occupy actually on online. I, th- I believe it was on Facebook and um, had been speaking to a few organizers. And I think we all had the same reaction when we saw the initial invite, which was, is, is this real? Is this, do you think this is legitimate? Do you think we could actually get thousands of people down to this park? So there was a lot of skepticism, but also hope. I think there was a little glimmer of hope. I think as, as Ruth said, this was an incredibly depressing time, um, you know, post Obama promise of hope and change the recession and the mortgage crisis and the Scott Walker uh, win and all of the attacks on the labor movement. It was a really depressing time. So I think the idea of just coming down to a park to convene um, a gathering of like-minded people, um, I think was really appealing. And so the first time I came down to the park actually was with a group of um, a group of domestic workers. We had just left a, a big convening and they w- themselves were very um, excited to see what was happening down at Zuccotti. So we took the train down together. And I think for the folks that I came to the park with that day, for the workers that that um, kind of saw this gathering at the park, which was largely, you know, young white activists, I think that there was a sense of excitement, but also that they were viewing something that was um not their own, but nevertheless, very exciting to see. Can I just add one other point? Which sure. is, um, I remember, you know, I get a lot of queries from journalists about these kinds of things. And I remember, you know, early on in the Great Recession, people asking questions like, how come there isn't more protest in this situation? You know, and I never knew what to say. Like, this was just like 20... 10, maybe, even 09. And, you know, things were really bad in the labor market. And and yet it seemed, apart from Wisconsin, which was a little later, it seemed sort of quiet. And I never quite knew what to say. But of course, once Occupy emerged, there was an answer to that question. And um, I think there was, you know, it took a little time, but it was a response. I think Nastrin's right to the events of the preceding couple of years, the disappointment with Obama for sure, but also the the crisis in the labor market, which particularly hit young people who were first entering that labor market and, you know, had prepared in all kinds of ways to have a, some kind of decent employment and then confronted the Great Recession instead. Yeah. Um, and as a, as a scholar of social movements, um, did you did you observe anything in those um, initial days of the movement that uh, echoed movements that you've looked at in the past or, you know, other movements that have developed um, parallel to Occupy? And, um, you know, I remember when I was down there, one of the things that struck me is how sort of um, 
dramatic it was and sort of performative. And that doesn't mean, you know, performative as in phony, but um, as in uh, people really went out of their way to be creative about how they were protesting. And there's, um, you know, there's there are costumes and all sorts of creative mm-hmm. slogans and signs. Um, did did any of that echo to you movements uh, from history? Well, um, maybe in some ways. I mean, it was a very educated group of activists, for the most part, with an incredible amount of skill and you know a lot of artists involved. So I think some of the creativity came from that. But it also replicated movements in other parts of the world that had emerged in the preceding months in Egypt, in Spain, um, and so on. And so there was this kind of replication of the forms of occupation. You know, all those protests had these, these features of occupying a public space, providing food, providing housing, providing medical care. You know, it was it was all of that. But I think what was different from anything I had studied before anyway was the importance of social media. I myself am not a big social media participant, but this movement exploded as quickly as it did, partly because of social media. And it's not like it had never been tried before, but this was, I think, the first big success of a progressive movement with that um, mode of organizing. And so in that sense, it was unprecedented. I mean, maybe not 100% unprecedented, but in the United States, it was the first real marker of the potential of that kind of technology. And at the time, this is no longer true today, but at that time, the police and other, you know, forces of repression or whatever you want to call them, they were not on top of that at all. They had no idea how to deal with it. And so that gave the movement a huge advantage. Yeah. I believe people, um, social media also played a big role in the um, Arab Spring protests too. Oh, absolutely. Um, Yeah. 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 So it's interesting to see how much was happening at that point with uh, these platforms that we were probably a whole lot less jaded about 10 years ago. Um, but uh, you you actually went on to interview a number of uh, the activists involved. So do you want to talk a little bit about the um, the study that you did and the surveys that you conducted and um, what you learned about the people who turned out? Sure. Well, so I mean, the interviews were fascinating, and Nastron was one of our most brilliant interviewees, I have to say. But um, I think the country, lots of people did interviews with folks, and so we did that too. What we did that I don't think anyone else did do was try to um, actually do a systematic profile of the protesters. And um, I remember getting this idea at some academic gathering where there were a bunch of people interested in immigration, and I had a few years before had um, been at a conference where people were presenting papers. And one of the papers was a, an analysis of a big immigrant rights march in Chicago back in 2006, which um, was the year when there were these massive marches all across the country. And they had studied that with a methodology that was new to me at the time I heard the paper, which involve, it's, comes from Europe, and the technique is to take a, the physical space of a demonstration, divide that physical space up into segments, and assign an interviewer to each segment and instruct them to interview every tenth person, or you know, it could be some other number, but we did every tenth. And the idea is that you're basically simulating a random sample of the participants in the march. So 
I was with these people who were immigration people, you know, talking about that, remembering that and saying, gosh, somebody should do that with Occupy. You know, this is amazing. We should, we should find a way to figure out what's going on here. And um, I was kind of hoping somebody else would do it. And then it turned out everybody said, well, you should do it, Ruth. So um, with my colleagues at the CUNY School, it's now called the CUNY School of Labor and Urban Studies, Penny Lewis and Stephanie Luce, um, we got a little grant and we hired 50 graduate students to help us do this. They were each assigned to one of those spaces and we did it as well. And we did this kind of late in the game. The original plan was to actually survey the people occupying the park, but by the time we got our money, they had already been evicted. So instead we did this with one of the large marches. It was the May Day 2012 march. And what we learned, which, you know, you could kind of get this impression from just hanging around Zuccotti Park, but we were able to document it more systematically, was that the profile was very youthful, um, very highly educated, very affluent, pretty white, um, slightly more male than female. You know, it was not the usual suspects in terms of who you would expect to, well, maybe it was. I mean, it wasn't what we expected, let's just say. And so I think that was our sort of uh, big contribution to figuring out what was going on, because as far as I know, no one else attempted to do this. So, you know, everyone had that impression maybe, but we, we were able to try to systematically document it. And the social media thing also was very striking, not just in, I mean, that didn't come up that much in the survey, but in the interviews we did, it became really obvious that that was crucial. And I think it's related to the youthfulness because this isn't true now either, but at that time it was young people who were the most involved in social media and the most adept at using it. Um, people my age, not so much. So that has changed in the decade since, but again, Occupy was the kind of first burst in the United States of, um, you know, exploiting that technology for progressive ends. Yeah. And in a spectacularly successful way, I have to say. Yeah. So Nastar, and you were, you said you would um, actually come sort of uh, with people that you were organizing with um, to the site. And I, I guess this is sort of an update on your interview <laughs> nearly a decade later, but um you you also observed, I guess, uh, some of the sort of demographic landscape uh, in that movement. Can you talk about how you saw the movement fitting into your work or if there was kind of a palpable distance there between what the movement was saying or representing and, and the people you were trying to um, organize with and advocate on behalf of? Um, how did you how did you navigate that? Well, I think the the energy of occupy the just even the you know the 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 slogan of we are the 99% right when you think about that as the the kind of the rallying cry um for occupy that's something that resonated with virtually everyone um and so i think um you know the actual encampment like if you were to go down to Zuccotti during those uh, first few weeks, um, you know, before the, the park was violently cleared out in November, um, it was, as Ruth said, overwhelmingly white and, um, you know, highly educated young white folks. And I would say largely um, folks who are not from New York, right? So I, I grew up in New York and 
I've been a, an organizer in New York for many, many years. So it was very clear for me just looking, doing a, an initial scan of the park and then becoming very involved in, in the movement that these were mostly non-New uh, York City residents. Um, and so I think that that's for, for the, at least for the, the campaigns that I was working on, um, whether we're talking about restaurant workers or domestic workers. I mean, I think that when you see a group of activists rallying against um, income inequality, it's something that's incredibly inspiring, um, but you don't necessarily see a place for yourself in that space. So in those, uh, those early days and weeks, a bunch of us who were involved, um, very involved in the labor movement, either as staff organizers or community organizers or um, rank and file members of different unions across New York City, um, we started to come together. So there, we formed different working groups. One was the Occupy Wall Street, um, you know, the, the, the labor working group, which was very, very active. Um, and then there was another working group that was formed that was primarily for um uh, it was the Immigrant Worker Justice Working Group, which was primarily bringing workers um, and, and immigrant rights folks together. So there are kind of these, these adjacent working groups that were not so much involved in the actual encampment. And, um, you know, the, they weren't in the thick of Zuccotti, but, they, but we were meeting regularly. Um, and so what the infusion of energy and excitement and um, gosh, so much <laughs> was infused into our campaigns at that time. Um, I think that was one of the most amazing developments, especially for those that had been working in labor. And as Ruth said, it was just such a depressing time, even in New York City, where we have such a, such union density. I mean, it was really a very depressing time where we were looking for a glimmer of hope anywhere. And so, um, we had a campaign at that time against a, a deli in Times Square, um, and we were able to get Occupy activists to come and join, um, you know, an action outside of that deli. Um, several months later, we um, had some very raucous actions outside of Hot and Crusty, um, which was a campaign that was led by Laundry Workers Center, which I was working with at the time. Um, we had the art handlers, the Teamsters that we were supporting, the TWU workers that we were supporting. I mean, there was so much that was um, so much in terms of labor that was really supported and buoyed by what was happening at Zuccotti Park. And I think that um, cross pollination between folks in the labor movement and the folks who were, you know, primarily at Zuccotti, I think, was a really incredible. Um, it was it was really relationship building, and um, we're still seeing uh, the effects of that even years later. So, when you say cross pollination, were you through those working groups bringing new people on board in terms of organizing, or you know, volunteering to turn out at protests or show up at picket lines and things like that, or were they uh, helping in other ways? Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the biggest criticisms, I mean, there, and there are many, <laughs> one of the biggest criticisms of Occupy over the years and at the time even was just that this was a, you know, a leaderless movement without any demands. And obviously there are pros and cons to, to that. Um, but I think that the absence of a concrete campaign um, to get behind was, um, was, I think, you know, an important, important thing. Um, and a port, I think a 
it was it was a detriment, I think, in many ways. And so when we had actual campaigns to rally around, um, it absolutely drew um, new new people in, folks that were down at Zuccotti when they found out that we had a picket line somewhere, when they knew they could help out on some campaign concretely to support the low-wage immigrant workers in New York City who were struggling. So it wasn't just this kind of nebulous, uh, not, and I don't mean that in a derogatory way, but it wasn't this kind of like amorphous, you know, demand. It was like a very concrete thing that they were coming to support, which is to go after this, this employer, you know, at this one deli on the Upper East Side where, you know, on, in a zip code, a very wealthy zip code right here in New York City. You know, we had um, folks who would who would just show up. We put out a call and, and people just showed up. Um, people showed up with instruments. People showed up with um, there were two amazing, amazing supporters who showed up with their cameras to document the um, the struggle at Hot and Crusty. And then they ended up producing an award winning documentary called The Hand That Feeds. <laughs> but they were initially um, Rachel and Robin were just initially supporters of, you know, they were just coming to, to support the picket line and they happened to bring their camera and record what was happening and it ended up turning into this amazing piece of history. Um, so people really brought their skill sets and for the workers, it was just incredible to see these strangers um, who they may have seen down at Zuccotti and they may have seen in one of the working group meetings, but to see them actually show up outside of their workplace and hold the line really join a picket line and um, not just show up one day or one hour, but continue to show up day after day for the workers um, was, I think, a really, really transformative experience for a lot of people. So what happened to the Hot and Crusty Union? Or is that is that Hot and Crusty still there? <laughs> can, we, can we just get an update on, on the Hot and Crusty situation? Oh, wow. There have been so many, so many. The, the evolution of that campaign is a long one. But um we were ultimately after the the workers were out on on the picket line for for several months. The store reopened and the workers were all brought back. Um, eventually, the store ended up closing sometime later, and we we ended up getting into subsequent battles with the owner at other storefronts that were opened. Um, but unfortunately, yeah, this the store is closed. But um, the workers involved in the campaign went on to train workers in many other campaigns through the Laundry Workers Center. One of the, um, the you know, the primary worker leaders um, is now the co-director of the Laundry Workers Center right now and is working on multiple campaigns across New York and New Jersey um, and has trained up hundreds of workers in low-wage industries, primarily uh, laundry workers, actually. So it is a um, that while the store itself is closed, um, what that campaign kind of spawned is um, is the 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 happy ending <laughs> to that yes. to the one campaign, the Hot and Crusty Workers Association. Definitely a, a rare happy ending <laughs> to come out of <laughs> a ten year labor struggle or uh, ten years of labor organizing coming out of that single event. Um, so can you? I mean, as you're on the ground um, as both a labor organizer and, and someone who's participating in the movement. Um, I remember, you know, reporting on um, how labor unions were interacting with Occupy, and um, and I, I think, you know, it took maybe a few days or um, or a while, right? But um, I think eventually um, unions did start to show up, or at least provide, um, you know, some moral support uh, for for um for the movement and 
I, I guess I, I'm, I'm curious about your take um, as an organizer uh, about what the labor movement's involvement with Occupy was and how those two movements intersected. Um, and do you, do you wish maybe um, labor had done things differently or um, maybe um, um, taken sort of a, a different role, I guess? Well, I think most of the participation uh, that unions had or, or their interaction with the movement itself was with either with rank and file members, with rank and file members themselves or staff. Um, I, at the higher level, the participation was a little bit guarded, as you can imagine. We know that that historically unions are very cautious about how they interact and intersect with social movements. And um, it is a tricky relationship. And I think that in the beginning, you know, certainly in the beginning, there were some really, really hopeful um, moments. You know, there was a time when when the TWU bus drivers would refuse to transport um, those who had been arrested at Zuccotti. And um, we had leadership of some unions um, you know, attend meetings here and there. But it was really in those earlier days, I would say, that we saw the most positive response. But on the whole, those who were like actively engaging with the movement were rank and file members and staff, young, mostly young staffers. So there was always, always a, a, a deep, 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 deep desire for the labor movement to be act, interacting much more uh, substantially with Occupy and seeing all of the opportunities that were right, you know, w- with unions feeling so deflated and defeated. Here we have a movement that's happening right down the street in downtown Manhattan that um, they could not only visit the park, but meet organizers, educate so many of the participants of Occupy on uh, on labor, on the struggles happening in New York City and across the country. I mean, I think there were a lot of missed opportunities there. Um, and I think where we saw um, another um, kind of hopeful blip was um, uh, the Occupy Sandy movement, which happened shortly thereafter, which brought a lot of the same Occupy organizers out to um, Staten Island and Rockaway, Queens and New Jersey and Brooklyn and so there were several unions, most notably the New York State Nurses Association, but certainly TWU. Um, unions really came out and um, played a, a really critical role, not only in, in offering up resources after Sandy hit in 2012, it's going to be actually the nine-year anniversary, but in shaping the conversation around climate change and austerity, like why was New York City um, hit so so hard? And what does this mean about, you know, our infrastructure, which is a, an amazing conversation to be having today. Yeah, geez. <laughs> Not really. We've been, we've been here before. Right. All right. You know, it's everything that's, you know, it's just like, uh, we're on repeat with this terrifying cycle. And we're, you know, at the 10 year anniversary of, of Occupy and nearing the nine year anniversary of Occupy Sandy. And 16th anniversary of Katrina, all of these horrible anniversaries, and we're still having the same conversations about climate change and infrastructure. Um, But yes, unions were definitely a big part of that um, as well. But it's always been, um, I would, I guess the best way I'd like to describe it is kind of like one toe in, (laughs) one toe in the pool. 
um, but not fully jumping in and um, seizing on the opportunity to um, to really um, tap into the, these these decentralized organic grassroots movements. Um, because it's a win-win. It's a win for those movements to have the institutional power and the hundreds of thousands of union members plugged in to that to those social movements. And uh, it's a win for the unions who need that shot in the arm at such such critical times. Speaking of institutions, uh, Ruth, I think one of your observations in uh, the surveys that you did um, was that there's a great sense of disillusionment with the mainstream political system and kind of the political conversation in the country in general. Um, and yet, you know, Occupy was certainly um, very, very, uh, very political, uh, very political movement. And, and it did shift the political landscape in, in some significant ways at the time, certainly. So, um, so in looking back, how do you see, um, how do you see that, the impact of um, that type of disillusionment with politics and and the sort of and the sort of alternative politics that grows out of that disillusionment and in the years since, um, do you think that grassroots movements, um, in terms of the way they view electoral politics or um, mainstream politics in general, um, has that evolved and um, and has it maybe built on um, the kind of foundation that Occupy laid? Wow, that's a lot of questions rolled into one, but I'll try. Um, Well, so I think, um, Nastra mentioned before, the disillusion with Obama in particular, because the generation that was most, you know, the leading edge of Occupy was also the same generation that had been very enthusiastic about Obama before he was elected and had actually, in many cases, people had campaigned for him pretty actively. And then you know, nothing really changed was the view that many folks had. And so that's part of what sparked Occupy was the sense that it wasn't going to happen from the conventional politics, you know, that it was not working. Um, And, and so, but, but the success of Occupy itself, I think, paved the way in the last decade for a political transformation that made possible the success of Bernie Sanders and, you know, capturing national attention. And I mean, he was there all along, but he was not in the center of the conversation until after Occupy. And of course, many of the people who participated in Occupy Wall Street went on to campaign for Bernie. Um, Also, I think, you know, getting back to Nastrin's comments on the labor movement, um, this generation has since then, some people like Nastrin were already involved in the labor movement, but Unions are kind of cool again in this generation in a way that was not true yet in 2011, with a few um, precocious exceptions like Nastrin. It, it really wasn't where things were at. But now we've seen the influx of a whole new generation of young people who've chosen to make labor organizing of one sort or another you know, their focus. And so ironically, the you know this movement that rejected established institutions and established ways of doing things has now transformed those same institutions and ways of doing things in a, in a really important way. So we have Bernie, we have AOC, we have um, all the success that has um, emerged in recent years with organizing journalists, such as what Nastrin's involved in, but also the teacher strikes, which were led by this same generation and 
um, in the red states and actually organized on social media initially um, and so on. So I, you know, it's, it's kind of come full circle in some ways. Yeah. And um, it's worth noting that, you know, in the, in the years since Occupy, there's been a surge of unionization among the sort of millennials who are at the forefront of, of the Occupy movement. But now they're sort of taking that kind of ethos and putting it into their own workplaces, maybe, and organizing there. Yeah, I forgot to mention one other group that's like that. And by the way, again, these are all, you know, just like the occupiers, you know, highly educated folks. So it's besides the teachers and the journalists, there's also um, in my own quote unquote industry education, graduate students organizing, adjunct faculty organizing, all these things have been um, very vibrant in the last 10 years. Yeah, I think shout out, shout out to the adjuncts. <laughs> um, so, you know, we, we mentioned uh, the Arab Spring earlier. Um, the, one of the interesting aspects that came out of Occupy that I think other movements have also since then uh, reflected was the kind of global orientation and um, the interest in sort of transnational organizing or at least um, building some sort of uh, you know global solidarity with movements and I think we've seen that resonate with um, you know Black Lives Matter and uh, and the Me Too movement as well um, and and also labor I think has um, has sort of evolved in that direction too so I, I was wondering um, if we can get outside of New York City a little bit how um, how you two feel that Occupy um, as a kind of globally facing movement may have informed uh, the way people organize or the way activists see themselves. Well, I think. You know, for 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 people around the world to see, um, you know, for the victims of so much of the the pain and death and destruction that U.S. imperialism wreaks on on them, um, it was, I'm sure, a really inspiring and heartening development to see that people are finally taking to the streets, and because there was such a long stretch of time. Um, of course, there were protests throughout the 2000s. I mean, the, the the most sizable protest before Occupy that I can remember was, uh, you know, the anti-war protests in the early 2000s um, before, you know, where hundreds of thousands of people came out in the streets, not only in New York City, but around the world. Um, and we invaded anyway, of course. Um, so I think that once... Uh, once Occupy took off and that message spread around the world in the same way that we were watching the Arab Spring with such hope, um, even though it was, uh, it, it took off in New York City and then subsequently took off in other cities across the country, it was a message that was heard around the world, particularly because that message of the 99% um, is one that's felt in so many places around the world. And um and New York City is the heart of capital. So I think that that message, you know, it's hard to really kind of put your finger on or quantify like what exactly or pinpoint. And I'm sure, Ruth, you found this in your research. You know, when someone asks, like, do you think that this was the result of Occupy? It's, it's really hard to put your finger on it because it's something that is so, as I said earlier, kind of amorphous. Um, but I think that it's that message um, has definitely infused movements across the world. Yeah. Well, let's remember first that 
Occupy sort of um, cloned itself all over the world. So it began in Zuccotti Park and here in New York, but then w- very quickly um, replicated first, you know, across the United States and, you know, hundreds of places and then also elsewhere. And at the same time, it was inspired, as we already talked about, um, by somewhat similar movements elsewhere in the world. I remember, you know, there was this wonderful um, publication that appeared in Zuccotti Park, the Occupied Wall Street Journal, um, put together by some very talented journalists. And I remember the first issue had this timeline, starting with Tahrir Square in Egypt and going, you know, through a series of other movements and then ending with Zuccotti Park. But of course, that wasn't the end. It continued. So there is that global story, you know, just in the very short run, both before um, Zuccotti and and after. Um, And then maybe this isn't so much global, but I do think it, it, um, the success of Occupy inspired um, even people who hadn't directly participated, as well as many who had, to become involved in other kinds of movements, including Black Lives Matter, including Me Too, you know, all the things that we've seen develop over the last year. And so it was kind of the starting point of a massive wave of protests that really did not exist before 2011. Sure, there were protests here and there, but they never had the scale or captured the public imagination um, in the way Occupy did in the years immediately preceding. So, you know, not since the 1960s have we really seen um, this kind of explosion of social activism. And I think Occupy was the starting point. So even though it didn't last very long as Occupy, it became the catalyst for a whole range of um, activities in the decades since. Yeah. And I think also in terms of the way movements kind of um, like brand themselves right? and and like sort of the circulation of um, symbols and imagery and slogans, right, that, you know, facilitated by social media. I think that um, Occupy was definitely sort of the the sort of laid out a template, right, for for other movements to build upon. Um, and hopefully we'll see other iterations of that in the coming years. And, and you know, we we um, we called our report. Um, the report I co-authored with Stephanie Luce and Penny Lewis, we called it changing the subject. And that was meant to have a double meeting on the one side, as many people have pointed out, um, the whole issue of inequality and its explosive implications was put into the center of political conversation after 2011 by Occupy. We've documented that just in like searching Google news for mentions of the word inequality. It goes up in 2011 and stays up thereafter. So there's that, but it also created a new political subject. That's the other changing the subject. Um, a new generation of political subject, I would argue, that went on to do all these other things. So, you know, some people poo-poo the whole thing as this, you know, oh, it was just a couple months, these kids in the park, you know, what's the big deal? But in fact, my own claim would be that this really was the start of something very important that has continued since. Yeah. And in our last couple of minutes, I guess I, I wanted to get a sense um, sort of in retrospect when you look at what Occupy accomplished and maybe the the type of resonance it had well beyond um, the, the movements and the campaigns themselves. Um, maybe you could address some of the uh, 
critiques of the movement uh, that have come out um, over the past decade or so. Um, you know, we talked about them a little bit here, sort of the the charges that it's kind of, you know, it's a leaderless movement or it's too disorganized or they didn't have any demands, that sort of thing. Um, and, and maybe also, you know, um, lessons learned um, from uh, what uh, what could be, you know, both what what is possible and, and what could be done differently next time. I think the most um, compelling criticism was actually that, although on the one hand, the strength of Occupy was its focus on class inequality, there were times when other kinds of oppression and inequality were not sufficiently attended to, um, race and gender in particular. And it, it wasn't completely absent, and there were struggles within Occupy to lift those things up. But I think, you know, that was both a strength and a weakness at the same time. Um, but I think that lesson was absorbed pretty rapidly by the people involved. And, you know, again, Black Lives Matter being one of the after effects. Nastron, any lessons learned? Yeah, I would agree that that, that was probably the, the, the most significant criticism, not only at that time, but even just looking in retrospect years later, just that it was, um, it was largely a movement of, of white activists who were, um, you know, just looking at New York City there, who didn't really have very much connection with the, the city itself and the working people in the city. And I mean, I remember that was my, my biggest criticism from the first time I, I started joining meetings. Um, and so I think that the message was, incredibly powerful and the lack of hierarchy was at times very, very, very empowering, I think, for so many people to to join this space because there weren't the same barriers and limitations that exist in other um, in other organizations or political parties or um, you know, jobs, nonprofits. I mean, it was so decentralized that it really allowed um, so many people to join its ranks and learn and grow. And, but it was, um, it was mostly white folks. (laughs) We know the significant, um, limitations that that presents. So, um, it wasn't just the fizzling out of the actual physical space. I think once the loss of the physical space happened, um, many of the people that were, um, down at Zuccotti didn't really know what to do from there, right? Because they weren't connected with, um, they weren't necessarily connected with, uh, with any, any struggles in New York city. And so, um, and, and I can go on and on and on about what that eventually led to. I mean, I think a lot of amazing people ended up doing, doing great work over the years. Um, and there were, many organizers that were involved in Occupy that actually were from New York City or were part of the labor movement. So they, but they were the exception. So I would say that that was the biggest criticism. Um, and then uh, looking at, at Occupy Sandy, um, there's a whole set of, <laughs> a whole nother set of considerations with, um, with that work and, and the fact that organizers were, who were not from the kind of the outer boroughs of New York City who were kind of plunked down there for a few months to do that work. And we're able to do fantastic work, but also we're not from those communities themselves. So, um, but yeah, I would I would agree with with Ruth that that was probably the biggest biggest criticism of Occupy. So, 
in our final few minutes, any any closing thoughts, um, maybe about how Occupy changed your perspective? I think that it gave, I gave, Occupy really gave, it gave me and I think many, many people a window into what's possible. And I think it really was a, um, a really incredible moment in time where the space opened up that didn't currently exist, didn't previously exist for many, many people and many young people. So you'll hear a lot of Occupy organizers say even years on that they kind of cut their teeth during Occupy either, you know, just um, learning how to organize, facilitating meetings, connecting people, even just the interpersonal piece of it. I mean, it was really difficult to maintain to maintain that level of uh, a non-hierarchical um, organization that was, you know, maintaining an encampment <laughs> under the watchful eye of the Bloomberg administration for many, many weeks. Um, but I think everything, even that came subsequently, I think there was so, so much learning that took place at that time. And it was done outside of the kind of restrictions and confines of a typical kind of hierarchical structure. Um, and that allowed some really amazing work um, it allowed that work to get done. And particularly in the case of Occupy Sandy, because so, mo- so many of us just kind of went out and did the work and we weren't working for an organization like FEMA or a big nonprofit. And that, that was Occupy. We were able to do the work and really roll up our sleeves and build the world together, even if it was for a sh- very short, brief period of time, to actually roll up our sleeves and build the world that we had all been talking about. Um, and it was uh, it was a spark that um, that really took off. And uh, yeah, I would say that that's probably the biggest lesson for me. I saw the best in people. Yes, I also saw the worst in people. But I would say during that time, I really did see the best in people and what is possible. Yeah, I think it really empowered people because there were people to whom activism was new who were involved in Occupy, but there were also people who were veteran activists and. Many of them had never quite had the success that they enjoyed with Occupy before that in terms of capturing literally the attention of the entire world in this big way and transforming political discourse in a major way. So that was empowering and I think encouraged people to continue to, you know, do that in other arenas in, once Occupy was, came to an end. So... Um, I think it was enormously important as a kind of turning point for progressive movements. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. That was City University of New York professor Ruth Milkman and labor organizer Nastran Mohit. We'll put links to their work and more on Occupy at the Descent Magazine website, descentmagazine.org slash belabored. And if you missed the first installment of our Occupy conversation with Jonathan Weston and Stephen Lerner, you can go back to the Descent Magazine website and check it out along with all of our archives, descentmagazine.org slash belabored. That's all we have time for this week. Keep tuning in for more on striking food manufacturers, social movements, and working and not working in the age of COVID-19 and climate crisis. Thanks, as always, go to the folks at Descent for hosting us, to Natasha Lewis and Colin Kinneborough for editing us, and most importantly, of course, to you 
for listening to us, sharing us with your friends, tweeting about us, sharing us on every other hellacious social media platform, writing to us and sharing your stories with us. We especially appreciate it if you can rate us on Apple Podcasts or whatever app you use to get your podcasts. We are on a lot of them, and it really does help us find new listeners. Special thanks to those of you who are sustaining members of the podcast, either at the Descent website, descentmagazine.org slash belabored, or over on our Patreon at patreon.com slash belabored. If you want to support our always free to listen podcast, bringing you reporting and analysis on the working class today, but you haven't joined up yet, there are some gorgeous Molly Crabapple worker portraits for the highest tier donors. And as always, you can find out more about us and everything we do on the Descent website, descentmagazine.org slash belabored. If you want to share your story with us of working under coronavirus, you can, as always, email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org if you're a journalist or a fast food worker on the assembly line or driving an Uber, unemployed or overworked or both. We want to hear from you. You can tweet at us too at hashtag belabored. Thanks again for listening. Solidarity. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored. <laughs>